0: welcome to app talk with uptick each week we dive into the nitty-gritty of how to grow mobile apps and games we speak with industry experts about specific strategies tools and tactics they use to find success and we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing mobile app ecosystem my name is xander agosta and i'm growth lead here at uptick and joining me today are my co-hosts
1: Warren Woodward, co-founder at Uptick. And our guest?
2: Kristen Luciano from HubSpot.
1: Cool. So yeah, before we get started today, I just wanted to put out an APB that uh, Uptick is currently hiring. So we are looking for new team members. Um, Most immediately, we're looking for folks with user acquisition background, but we're also looking for folks with uh, creative production background and uh, data analytics and uh, even content marketing. So if you do any of those things, um, hit up uptick.com, U-P-P-T-I-C.com, and uh, you can just fill out the little bot uh, on there and get more information from us.
0: Awesome. Um, cool. So jumping right in, our first section is industry I- insights where we shed some light on mobile industry news. Um, Warren, do you want to take us off first thing this morning?
1: Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, so in- interesting. It was a weirdly slow news week this week, right? Right, Xander. We were like, it feels like for the last, since we started the podcast, like there's been more news we can possibly cover. So we went a little deeper on the news this week. Um I, uh, I wanted to talk about this article from pocketgamer.biz. Um, this was about uh, some evolutions in UA funding. So uh, the headline is Pollen VC, uh, which is the company, now allows devs to borrow four times their games monthly revenue. So for a little blurb from it, uh, Fintech Outlet Pollen VC is expanding its credit facility so mobile game developers can now borrow up to four times their monthly revenues. The expansion has happened as Pollen VC's modeling of revenue flows have gained granularity and live performance metrics. Pollen VC's modeling is based on developers' accounts receivable plus an estimate of the value remaining in their player base and its overall lifetime value. Um, So... Uh, there's a quote from the, the, the CEO, I'll, I'll, I'll read real quick too. Um, he said, uh, developer revenue isn't just realized at the point of download, monetization occurs over the consumer's lifetime of the app or game. Uh, our ability to base our lending decisions not, not just on accounts receivable, but also now in a developer's existing user base is unique and will be a game changer for the industry. The amount of available credit is recalculated on a daily basis. So as marketing performance improves, so the amount of available borrow to, will grow. Uh, OK, so why are we talking about this? So um, a lot of our day-to-day work at Uptick, we are talking to app developers that are in process of scaling their apps. And one thing that we encounter somewhat frequently is there's a developer that's um, they know how, like they have a good strategy for growing the app. They have a strong app with good metrics, but they just have cash flow problems. So um, there's two main ways that we see developers traditionally approach this. One is, you know, they they, they raise funding, you know, sell so, so equity in their company, and the other is that they partner with some sort of like UA funding. Um, Entity so um, pollen VC here is like talking about a slightly you know a a tweak on the old model where they're doing some prediction. Uh, There's also outfits. um, Some of the more uh, prominent ones are like Bravo capital that they just focus on, um, you know, just a lending only component Um, and then there's entities. uh, Like um, tilting point that both do the funding and then also kind of insist on doing the growth marketing for you. Um, so this is a very challenging area for developers to navigate because um, it can lead to, uh, most, most of these models do is you're giving a percentage of both your organic and your paid users. And it can get you in what I call a little bit of like a payday loan trap of like, you're always like giving a portion of your forward revenue. And if you don't have a good marketing strategy where like your growth market is actually effective, you can get in a little trap where you're just giving away more and more of your business. So yeah, I think this is a, this interesting new model where they're trying to like use a little more data science and modeling out the user value, but I'm not sure if it's actually a game changer. Um, I'm curious, I guess Xander, I'll go to you here first. Uh, I know we've discussed like some of these different funding models. What do you what do you think about like just the current state of, of funding for growth marketing in general? Uh, do you see anything unique in this model? What do you see as you know, good and bad approaches to this?
0: Well, it sounds like they're just actually modeling out like ARPU the way that we would, which makes a lot of sense, and because then we know that that's how people monetize these games is they have these long life site, long lifetimes within their existing user base. Um, I think the, at the end of the day, question of for me comes down to like rate, right? Because we know a lot of these guys are charging reasonably high rates, and it eats into the margin and makes makes a lot of these companies hard for them to be profitable at all. And so if these guys can off if they can, lift company can look at um, existing revenue base and get get some more confidence in the people's ability to pay back, they can maybe offer lower rates, which means that these, you know, everyone wins in those situations. Um, yeah,
1: I guess one, one piece of context that I, I didn't call out, but part part of um, pollen VC's model is I think you actually have to connect your data um, directly to to their their system. So it's not just giving them a report, like they're looking at the data in real time.
0: Kristen, do you have uh, any thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, it's actually interesting. this is something that HubSpot's been looking at from a venture perspective, where we're actually looking into investing in companies like this in order to um, bring them to our, co- our customer base is a lot of SMBs, very small mom and pop shops, some are up to, you know, hundred employees at most. And this has been a big pain point for them, not just in their ad strategy, but their overall marketing strategy. So um, it's been interesting to see the rise of all of these companies With this type of model to assist these companies in getting off the ground and as they scale and are able to pay back these micro loans, essentially for the marketing strategy, we're seeing them scale a little bit faster than they normally would.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting. It's it's a very similar model, right? Because as HubSpot is a CRM, you see a lot of the data, so you have some sort of insight into the performance of the business and you can be intelligent about the way that you're giving out loans which I think obviously, oh, and I guess yeah. maybe we should have said this at the top, but Uptick is a HubSpot customer. Um, and so we use yeah, HubSpot as a full disclosure. <laughs> I think that's what we should probably, probably just talk about. Cool. Um, any other thoughts here before we move on?
1: No, I think I think Kristen brings up a good point of like, yeah, there's probably some other versions of this. We're very really focused in the app world, but just for people that are just seeking funding to you know grow their business in a, a data-informed way, yeah, I think there's a, other opportunities um, to build some other kinds of models.
0: Cool, moving on. Uh, my headline is from Business Wire and it is Electronic Arts Acquires Playdemic from WB and at and for $1.4 billion. Um, we do a lot of M&A talk on this podcast and this is more of that. Um, Playdemic marquee title launched in 2017. It's called Clash Golf. Um, and the remaining WB assets, so they, you know, basically Electronic Arts bought this WB asset, uh, mainly one game, but it's a company as well. Um, and the rest of the assets will be part of the Warner, Me- uh, Warner Media slash Discovery uh, entity, um, which is a big merger and that's happening right now. Um, and this is in the context of EA finally beefing up its mobile division. It acquired glue recently. Um, and EA has a really big focus on sports games. Um, and so it's sort of, it is a logical extension for them. Um, you know, EA has been a little bit, late to the game in mobile and they're sort of trying to play catch up um but i think this one seems like a pretty logical acquisition i mean they're targeting a a golf game and one thing that i sort of noticed when i was digging this morning is um ea announced that they're launching a new mobile pga tour game in 2022 and so i wonder Mm. if they're basically just going to buy this game white label it and relaunch it in a couple years um which if that's the case it seems like a very very logical thing to do uh any thoughts
1: yeah, so I mean, Golf Clash was uh, definitely like that thing went viral when it launched. Um, I saw people that I knew were not interested in golf in any way that were like raving about it. Um, and Playdemic definitely like had a hit on their their hands. I just um, as you were describing, the, reading through the stories, Andrew, I, I, in my head I was like, yeah, what's what's Playdemic been up to since Golf Clash? And I went to their page and pulled down games, and it's it's just Golf Clash. Like, uh, and you mentioned that EA can be a bit of a slow mover in um, sort of adapting to the times, and I. I'm sure that there's like some awesome stuff in development from Playdemic, but um, it it almost is like they're skating to where the 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 puck uh, is instead of where where it's it's going or even like where it was a couple years ago. But that being said, no shade to Playdemic. I, I think they are a great developer, and I'm sure they've got some great stuff in the pipeline. But I feel like almost like this is a deal that probably started working on years ago when it was a lot hotter, and like it's finally finally closing. So, yeah, we'll see if, if EA can be nimble enough to actually be a more meaningful competitor in the, the mobile space. That's Kristen.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. My first thought was um, exactly the PGA and all of the. I mean, right now, everyone's watching golf. I feel like, I feel like everyone's um, on the golf game, as you will. But um, it actually reminded me of when it was chess, when um, the Queen's Gambit came out and all of these gaming companies jumped on. Chess games, and that blew up because it was aligned with everybody watching chess. Um, so it's interesting to see more and more of these companies jumping on games as it relates to what else we're watching and consuming as content um, at that time.
0: Yeah, like getting in on the macro trends, which is a really effective strategy. Um, more and on one thought you, about what you had mentioned was that they basically have one massive temple temple success, which a lot of these companies will then use. They're probably spinning up and you you doing R and D across a number of games, right? And if you have a hit as big as go- a golf clash, you know you can potentially afford to kill quite a few games as long as your main game is printing money. So maybe that's what's happening. I mean, I don't have any insight into this game, this company in particular.
1: That's true. And I realize I'm being a little unfair to EA, because just thinking about it from the the other side, what is, what is a EA good at? They're great at building franchises, right? And so you take a brand as powerful as, as golf clash, and maybe EA is the right resource to build that into, you know, an actual multi-title franchise.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think conversely, I don't think, it's, I don't think it's unfair to say EA's been incredibly late to the mobile space and, you know, they're having to buy in order to grow into it because they have not been able to produce it in-house for years, if not decades, or at least a decade.
1: Yeah, they've been hiring good talent. So we'll, we'll see if that that changes in the near term. So definitely, like, they're they're being a little more aggressive lately. I like their moves more lately than I did a few years ago, for sure. We'll see.
0: Cool. Uh, next and final article is from Singular, a company that Christina and I know well, and Warren as well. Um, the headline is 1.5 billion in ad spend shows iOS 14.5 driving mobile ad spend towards Android. So according to singular data, mobile ad, the mobile ad spend by platform has drastically shifted in the last four months from 56.44 Android to iOS to 70.30 Android iOS in just from February to mid June. So that is a crazy, crazy amount of spend that is fleeing the iOS ecosystem for Android. Um, and I think the critical thing here is that it's not only that a per- the percentage of spend is being shifted. So it's not that just that we're moving, you know, uh, people it's not incremental dollars being put into the Android ecosystem. This is money fleeing iOS going directly into Android. Uh, so this is a big deal. And I think we knew this was going to happen, but it's just really, you know, singular isn't, isn't everything, but you know, $1.5 billion in ad spend is a lot and that's they have a pretty good slice of the ecosystem. And so, I mean, any thoughts here? I mean, it's pretty, pretty wild.
1: Yes, I mean so many thoughts. I mean, this is just kind of uh, codifying, you know, the the things that we've already seen um, in our day to day data. Um, But yeah, the the number, you know, I I just came out of doing a a webinar actually right before this with Singular, and we 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 talked about this the same um, the same report. But you know, the main thing we see is people just have analysis paralysis when figuring out how to approach. Um, attacking iOS right now and we see that reflected by just like either ceasing that component of their spend or moving it over to Android so what happens in Android the competition goes up so Android gets harder um, and then iOS is harder for a number of developers because they haven't adapted their strategy to it yet or they can't because of some of the technical blockers Um, so we're seeing that if you're if you're trying to operate off of yesterday's rules it's going to be harder for you right now on iOS. It's going to be harder for you on Android because now it's clear that the competition has moved there, um, and this just sort of magnifies like why people need to be active about like not waiting for someone else to figure out a strategy that works for iOS um, that they can copy because the competition is down. There's opportunity now if you can and make uh, if you can develop a strategy, um, you know, now we have the data to clearly show that. Kristen, do you have do you have any thoughts? I'm I'm curious. Like you're coming from a different part of the ecosystem, more broadly, with like your client base at, Hub, at HubSpot. Have you have you felt the impact of these ecosystem changes with with Apple's privacy change policies, or is it something that, from your vantage point, is uh, less less material?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. It's been less material um, just because our customer base tends to be um, less sophisticated when it comes to UA buying. Um, and this is across the board, it's not just mobile, it's mobile and web. Um, what we're seeing is a lot of people just questioning what this even means. We're taking it 10 steps back and even starting with the step one, how does, how does tracking work in the first place and what does this actually mean? Uh, I think um, it's been interesting to hear some of the questions that we get. Um, and now a lot of our customers are starting to freak out about a cookie world, which is the next iteration of what we're seeing in the, this ecosystem. What happens when cookies go away and tracking on web is now the same issue as what we're seeing with iOS 14.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be like an interesting topic to get into with you in our main segment today. Um, like, you know, Xander and I's team ultimately, we are like mobile app specialists. So we're like laser focused and like a part of the marketing ecosystem. But a product like HubSpot, your client base is gotta be so incredibly diverse that like the, the challenges that each of your clients are trying to solve are just like night and day different in the level of i'm sure some clients are super technically proficient and some yeah as you said might be like more more remedial so that's probably a unique advantage a, a unique challenge of the hubspot customer base
2: mm-hmm. yeah and it's actually interesting and we can get into this later is what i see um, is an interesting dynamic is we have these customers who are mom and pop shops they're on our free tool or on our starter which is our lowest tier of um, paid. And they're the ones who are focused more on mobile, whereas our more um, high-end customers and more complex customers are actually more focused on just web and just that desktop experience. So it's less of an uh, impact in the mobile space.
0: Interesting. Okay, well, that's a good seg- uh, segue. So let's we'll just move on to our main topic. Um, I'm calling this Adoption of Mobile in B2B. We can maybe come up with a better name for that if, if we want later. Um, <laughs> but just start off, uh, Kristen, will you just talk, give us a little bit of background uh, about you and what you've done and why you're such a great person to have on for this topic?
2: Oh, I well, thank you. Uh, yeah, so my background is actually um, I started off my career in UA. So I was doing uh, ad-, ad buying in my early career. Um, and then I moved into the opposite side of the space, working for an ad tech platform, where I was then talking to UA managers on how to use that platform. Um, that was a natural progression into what is now strategic partnerships. So I was working with all of the ad networks, Facebook, Google, Snapchat, um, everyone under the sun and delivering um, just data around mobile apps in, uh, in particular. Um, from that, I decided to get a little more into a holistic view of your ad and marketing strategy. So I moved over to HubSpot where I am today where I am on the strategic partnerships team, um, thinking about how you work with partners like Google, Facebook, um, Twitter, Microsoft, and LinkedIn to bring not only you know, the ad component but other components of those businesses to small businesses like your mom-and-pop shops. Um, our customer base tends to be anywhere from one-person businesses all the way up to what we consider enterprise. Others would t- consider mid-market businesses of, you know, 100 to 200 employees.
1: Could you give just sort of a, a high-level summary of, you know, what HubSpot is and in, in the most common use cases for it, Kristen?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, HubSpot at its core is a CRM platform. So, you're where you have your central source of uh, record. Uh, built around it is automation. So if you think about a small business who is um, doing everything as one function, you know ever you see a CEO who's doing the sales, the marketing, um, the customer success, all is one role. HubSpot is making it simple and in one place to do all of that, uh, where you have your um, contact records in the middle and then you have your marketing automation where you can send your emails based off the contact record. You have your sales automation where you can then deliver your um, emails in an automated way to follow up with with leads. Then you have your customer success part of the platform where you're, um, you know, have open tickets and you're responding in ad hoc to um, bugs or, you know, open questions. So all of this is built into one platform servicing that SMB and mid market space.
0: Right, and we use it for exactly that purpose. You know, we use all our lead forms go through HubSpot. Our chatbot goes to HubSpot. Um, we use it for our tracking our uh, sales pipeline um, and all that sort of thing. So we can definitely vouch the effectiveness of it. So really just to get started, uh, how do we, how do you think about mobile apps in the context of B2B versus B2C?
2: Yeah, so it's been really interesting to learn how B2B companies think about this because my background has always been in B2C um, with a little bit of mix now coming into the B2B space. On the B2C side, it tends to be mobile app is thought about as uh, driving top of funnel. Um, signups, new to the app, you know, driving uh, installs in, in the case of mobiles. Um, but in B2B, it's actually the opposite. This, the primary focus is using mobile and mobile app strategy as a means for retention and engagement with your existing client base. Um, secondary is more of the sign up and top of funnel. Um, what we've seen at HubSpot in particular, we actually have, so HubSpot has a mobile app. It's the mobile app version of what you would see as our desktop CRM um, platform. It's a pared down version of it. And what we've seen is that the mobile app is actually used by more of our um, small businesses for engaging with, so our customers who are businesses engaging with their customers, um, using the information that they have in HubSpot.
0: Right. Right. It's like a very, very different use case than the predominant use case that Warren and I see, which is, you know, the app is the core lever le- The app is the core revenue driver for the business.
1: Yeah, I actually did not know HubSpot had a mobile app component. I'm downloading it now. <laughs> and I
0: <use> well, <laughs> Warren, there you can use that to update your leads now. There we go. Okay. Um so Original- go ahead.
2: I was going to say, originally, it's funny, when I first started at HubSpot, I didn't even realize we had a mobile app until probably about a year into the company. We created this app years ago as a means of driving signups to the free version of the platform. What we found is that people are not being going to HubSpot to sign up via the mobile app. They're actually using the mobile app as, for example, if you're a sales rep or inside or outside sales rep, and you're trying to get a hold of your customer, they're going to the HubSpot app. To then look for their contact information and just directly call them from the app, uh, they're already on their phone.
1: Makes
0: sense. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like a very distinct use case.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Um, I guess the next thing I want to touch around, and we're going to sort of jump around a little bit here. I'll try and keep it keep, keep us on track. But I want to talk about. I mean, your background has been been, been in partnerships, so I, I want to talk about partnerships in the context of the mobile app ecosystem and how that affects sort of mobile business strategy. Is this something you can speak to a little, Kristen?
2: Yeah, so whereas we're not a mobile-first focused company, a lot of what we're doing to service our end customer is partnering with other companies that do have mobile-first focus. So um, for if you think about B2B ads, and that's actually where my focus is, tends to be one component of it, but actually a bigger component of it is um, other types of um mobile first strategy. So messaging is a huge part of that. When we think about our customers as a B2B business, we're thinking about mobile app and communication. Um, How are you interacting with your end customer? And everybody these days is on phones. So messaging services via mobile apps like Line, um, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, those are really important um, partnerships to have so that our customers can then go and communicate with their customers via mobile. Um, my role at HubSpot is working with our big companies, biggest companies like Facebook, for example, to drive these partnerships and integrations so that we can deliver together for the end the B2B customer.
0: So, you started touching on this already, but can we talk a little bit about how B2B differs uh, from mobile in terms of a partnership strategy?
2: Yeah. So, when I was doing partnerships for mobile first use cases, the, fo- the focus was on how do you deliver mobile app um, tracking and um, data aggregation. And it was very focused on, um, like I said, driving top of the funnel use cases and looking at the analytics around it. What I found is that in the mobile app space, um, user the, the UA managers and the people who are doing mobile app marketing strategies tend to be uh, a lot more sophisticated about their marketing strategy. They're looking at more granular optimization. They're, you know, getting into the weeds on you know, all the way down to the publisher level and who's delivering what at what time. And it's in real time too. You're doing these optimizations on even an hourly basis sometimes. In the web side where I'm working now, where it's, you know, these B2B companies who are doing more desktop first, mobile second. It, we're looking at lo- longer strategies, optimizations that take place maybe once a month. There's no real focus on frequency caps. There's no real focus on the granular data. It's definitely more looking at the holistic uh, strategy and the holistic data around it. So when we're thinking about you know, reporting and MTA and um, mixed media modeling, you know, that stuff is, is complex to our customer base. Whereas that's just you know, something that's second nature in the mobile app space. So I would say that the biggest difference there is around the sophistication. And therefore, the partnerships kind of align. The partnerships that I'm working with, we're trying to solve for a more holistic um, solution as opposed to getting into the granularity that you would see in the mobile app space.
1: Kristen, just so we can kind of like, you know, the, the listeners can kind of put the pieces together. Can you give like a specific partnership example? Like walk us through that?
2: Yeah, so Google is a great example of that. Um, Google is one of my, our biggest partners and we work with them on a multiple on multiple fronts, but in particular on the ad side. When I worked with Google um, in the past on the mobile app space, we were working on you, bringing in um, as many levels of data as possible. We were working on what does multi-touch attribution actually mean? How should our custom, mutual customers be thinking about their um, UA buys and how should they be optimizing? How often should they be optimizing? And, you know, everything in between. um, When we're looking at deduping for installs and, you know, just thinking about how you align your data across um, Android and how people were thinking about Android versus iOS, there were just so many nuances there that we were getting into the details of. Now, when I'm working with Google, when we're talking about about web, you know, we're, do, we're talking about basic things like, okay, now we have an audience. How do we send, what audiences are we sending to um, Google and how is Google then using their smart bidding to do all of this on behalf of our customers? Um, how are we feeding their algor- algorithm to do it mm-hmm. for us? The, the, there are no UA managers over here. They just are feeding yeah. you data from HubSpot and saying go. And now it's Google just do, using their algorithms to do the bidding and um, buying for our customers.
0: Interestingly, that's also what they've done on the mobile side, right? Basically UAC, universal app campaigns. For Google, we basically don't have any other, almost no levers besides creative to do optimizations on Google. So I think it's maybe just more of a Google trend where they're like, hey, we don't trust anyone to do anything. We're gonna do it all ourselves. Yeah, (laughs) true.
2: Well, do you see a lot of your customers um, adopting UAC as opposed to just wanting to do it on their own?
0: You have to. So for mobile app installs, you have to use UAC. There's no, there's no alternative. Um, If we could do it on our own, we would not use UAC.
1: Yeah, because, you know, we have to assume, like, part part of the goal of, of something like UAC is to guarantee that Google sells every single ad impression. Um, you know, if people could choose what they're buying, there's probably some of that traffic that nobody would want to buy or would be very undervalued. So UAC, like, it ultimately, like, it's it serves to ensure that, like, Google's always selling its inventory for maximum value. Right.
2: Yeah, it's actually fun, fun when you say that because we have... a couple of in-house ad experts who actually tell our customers they're consultants to our customers and they tell our customers do not use smart campaigns do not um do the allow the the algorithm to do it for you let's but they're so smart how to do but they're so smart <laughs> so i, I don't it, it's interesting because our customers are starting to use smart campaigns just because they don't have the time to do these type of um, optimizations um and they actually like smart campaigns after a while let me caveat that it takes a while and a lot of data in order for it to actually that engine to start working but our customers are actually telling us they do like it um, if they give it the time
0: right when it- for your customer, it definitely makes sense, right? Because these are people who are small business owners, super busy, don't want to learn the ins and outs of how to optimize keywords. So like in that case, it definitely makes sense. Whereas ironically, on the UA side, you have an army who's ready, whose job it is to do the optimizations we don't have access to it or the ability to do it. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Cool. Yeah, actually,
2: that's a really good point. And that goes back to, again, what the difference is in partnerships in mobile app first in web.
0: Okay, um. So I guess another way, you know, you you at HubSpot are seeing an increased move across all businesses towards mobile. How does that fit into the long term strategy of HubSpot, the business of HubSpot?
2: Yeah, actually, it's it's still early days, but the way that we're thinking about it is actually where our customers are interacting with their customers. Um, so mobile app for us is not something that we focus on for ads. As a matter of fact, when it comes to ads, I think it's less than 10% of total spend for us. Um, at this point, we are seeing a trend of it becoming a bigger and bigger part of the overall ad by budget, but it's still very small. Right. Um, where we're seeing growth and where we're seeing more adoption is around the messaging space in particular and SMS. Um, and going back to what I was saying is how we're communicating with our, custom- with our customers and then them are commu- our customers are communicating with their customers. It's uh, messaging services like WhatsApp for international use, or Facebook Messenger, or SMS. It's
0: really sort of the acknowledgement that you know people are ultimately always on their phone, and any business, any seller wants to reach people where they are. And they're always on their mobile device. Everyone's always on their mobile device.
2: Yeah, and actually, it's it's really insane. I hadn't ever worked with WhatsApp in the past, and now this is something that we're we're starting to have this very serious conversation about because n- maybe not as big of a conversation here in the U.S., but how we think about um, our international presence and global expansion. WhatsApp is the app. That is how everyone is operating. Then that is a mobile app first and only company.
0: Yeah, like let's, let's touch on that a little bit because I know I mean we've talked about this before, but I mean talk about what the impact of WhatsApp as you as U.S people, US people, as people who live in the US, we don't necessarily know about this, but uh, you know, most of, in a lot of the world, it's way more than messaging app. Do you want to speak a little bit to like what WhatsApp is used for in most, in many parts of the world?
2: Yeah. So the number one use case is for service. So it's basically um, customers interacting with, or businesses interacting with their customers to um, answer questions, kind of like a Zen desk. It's almost like a ticketing service in that case. It's um, also, you know, where you're having one-on-one conversations about um, trans, if you think about a transactional email, for example, you know, you buy something, people are then responding via WhatsApp to say, hey, here's your shipping information. Here's your confirmation. Um, instead of an email, it's a WhatsApp message. Um, that's just the service use case. It's the same thing for sales. So if you think about sales automation, um, WhatsApp is used by sellers to communicate with their leads and um, nurture their leads in conversation. Um, And then on the marketing use case, now this is something that was never really the case in the past, but is now becoming more of the case, probably because WhatsApp wants to monetize more. Um, But having broadcast messaging, um, similar to how you would have a marketing or customer marketing email, instead you would have marketing messages via WhatsApp. And that's becoming a huge, huge component of Latin America, especially, I would say that's the biggest market. APAC would be second.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, like, what we traditionally do, marketing automation, we traditionally do in like email drips out of HubSpot. You're saying people are doing in WhatsApp drips out of HubSpot.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or will will be. Um, yeah. We're not there yet, but we yeah. will be there very
0: soon.
1: Or like even like lifecycle triggers. Okay, that is really interesting. Warren, did you have another thought here? No, I, I just I just think it's cool and just just kind of also thinking about how uh, you know better ways that that WhatsApp can be utilized in in some mobile specific work. Kristen's got my brain turning. Yeah, some,
2: <laughs> something that I thought was interesting and in one of my first questions was, will there be WhatsApp ads in the future? I mean, thinking about monetizing an app like that, they've never been good at monetizing WhatsApp in the past. Now you would think ads would be an important component, but there is no roadmap plan to have ads in WhatsApp. There is a plan to potentially have ads where you can click to WhatsApp to continue mm. the conversation. So that could be interesting. Interesting.
0: Oh, yeah. It's just like in-housing more and more of the funnel into the Facebook machine.
2: Yeah. And if you think about Facebook Messenger, they have the same thing, click to Messenger. Um, What I found really interesting is when I dug into the data in the US, Messenger is definitely the bigger messaging app across the two Facebook platforms. Internationally, WhatsApp is probably three x out of Messenger.
0: Yeah. And I use Instagram to do Facebook messaging. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I use it more for that than like I don't ever use Messenger. I don't ever use WhatsApp, but I do use mes- Instagram to message my friends. Stupid stuff. So, okay, here's a question I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about, but I'm going to Whoa. throw it on you and see see what you have, see what happens. Um, so last week we talked a little bit about the difference with our. We talked with Arun, who is CEO of a uh, attribution app, and he talked about you know web attribution, and we talked. And he worked in Adjust. We talked to mobile attribution. We were sort of like dancing on this idea of the Holy Grail, which is a hybrid solution to tie web and mobile and multi-touch attribution all into like one holistic view of how um, revenue is generated. Do you guys have a plan or roadmap or any thoughts about what is like a direction that you'd want to deploy for a hybrid solution and how people can start to think about that going forward?
2: Yeah, so originally we had a plan until now tracking is almost impossible. <laughs> um, I think actually what's really unique about HubSpot is because we are we ho- own all of the data as first party, we're actually in a really good place to help businesses with multi-touch attribution and just attribution in general. Um, one of the first solutions that we're working with is actually Facebook. So they came right. out with their, their new um, conversions API and that's allowing us to send events straight server to server from HubSpot to Facebook um, on our customer's behalf, obviously with them being involved. One of the big things there is the end user agreement to have their data shared. And that's the biggest hurdle that we're facing uh, when it comes to any kind of attribution, not just multi-touch. But I think you're gonna need to rely more and more on your CRM or wherever your customer data really lives in order to do any kind of attribution. And then especially that multi-touch approach. Um, So our plan is to, on the ad side, work with all of uh, the networks, Uh, Google's next, they're going to have something as well. And then, you know, we're also working with LinkedIn on what their solution is going to be. So for the ads piece, it'll be a server to server integration where we're also helping our customers have, for example, a cookie banner so that they get consent from their users um, and that we're ensuring not only we're compliant, but our customers are compliant as well. Um, So that's step one. And then in the future, it's going to be, again, just making sure that we have all that holistic view and everyone is using their CRM to send and receive events in a privacy-centric way.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's almost like, you know, we think there's, we often pontificate about whether or not the days of MMP are numbered. And, you know, it may be that I, I, you know, not in the short term, but, you know, I've talked about how you could use, I mean, effectively, you could use a CRM as an MMP, right? We, the MMPs today aren't really CRMs, but you could dream of a world where that is certainly the case. And it is basically an MMP for web only traffic. I mean, it basically does the attribution for in, in a lot of cases, correct? or am misunderstanding how.
2: Yeah, 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 So we, you have, we, HubSpot for example, we have our first party uh, pixel in this case. And that's, I mean, that's how we're doing the attribution is via um, the HubSpot pixel. Um, and then we obviously have containers that, not obviously, but we do have containers where we can bring where we host uh, the Facebook pixel and the Google pixel, um, all in one place. It also depends on if you're hosting your website with, not hosting, but if you have your website with HubSpot versus a third party. Um, it, at least on the website.
1: Yeah, I think this is going to be so crucial um, as we go into this this next era of of digital products because, like, you know that that sneak preview when we get to our app of the week the app i'm going to talk about this week is an app where you have the same user experience essentially on mobile in vr on pc on console and like thinking about growing an app like that most optimally what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you measure that? Because there's different economics in all of, of those systems, and the player can move nimbly from one to another. So, I, I think there's huge opportunity there, and and HubSpot, in a lot of ways, is one of the better positioned entities, I think, to um, to make a play for like really thorough um, cross platform measurement. Salesforce might have something to say about it.
2: Yeah, I'm sure, yeah, the the two of us are, you know, going, we're we're both in the same space trying to solve for the same thing, just for a different customer basis, us being more SMB and and mid-market, whereas Salesforce is more enterprise, Um, but I think those are going to be the type of companies that more companies are going to, more businesses are going to have to rely on um, for that server-to-server, as opposed to going through third-party tracking. Um, What I actually think is really interesting, I started, like I mentioned earlier, I started my career off as a UA manager. 10 plus years ago and I was working at a travel agency and this was a challenge back then as well where people were searching for starting especially um, with the group of with students that we were working with so we're talking about millennials who are already on their mobile devices mm-hmm. so people were searching for their flights on their mobile device but then they were going to desktop to actually check out. Um, and back then we were trying to tie the two together and figure out that multi-touch approach here. We are 10 plus years later, still trying to figure it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's a great example because beyond just where the user made the purchase, it's like, um, you mentioned this up, up top Kristen, but like, uh, even if, if all of the purchase activity and searching was on desktop, maybe the engagement of like checking in on your flight and using the mobile app over your kind of whole user journey made you more likely to come back the next time and use that same app. And how do you quantify that value? These are, these yeah, are the, the questions custom- that like m- make this business all, for, forever interesting.
2: Yeah, the customer retention piece with mobile as part of the hybrid approach is super interesting. I've just seen more and more of it uh, being used as even in the, um, in the travel space. I use the United app because I'm a, a United. I know not everyone's going to agree with me, but I love United because that's where I've always flown business. Um, I use the United app for everything now, uh, but I still check out on desktop. So I search for my plates on my mobile app. I go and check out on web, and then I go back to my mobile app, when I'm going to use it for my boarding pass, for my entertainment, for everything else. Um, so it helps me retain on United.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so you sort of give a sneak peek, but I, you know, you sort of jumped around a lot, and I wanna just sort of summarize this. So can you just you know quickly recap the core differences in B2B versus B2C, and how we see that playing into the future of mobile?
2: Yeah, so the biggest difference that I've seen is mobile app, um, when it's a mobile app first business and the B2C tends to be more mobile app first, they're looking at using mobile app for top of the funnel. So getting more users, getting more people into the app, getting more people using the game, um, getting more signups. Whereas in B2B, I've seen it as the flip where mobile is the secondary focus and it's used more for retention and engagement after you get a customer in. So you know, having that ongoing conversation with the customer and having that engagement um, with a prospect until they convert. Awesome. So I would say that's the biggest difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, I think it's a good key takeaway. Cool. Well, thanks for the discussion, Kristen. Very, very interesting and insightful. Um, We'll move on to our last segment, app of the week. Kristen, do you have an app this week?
2: Yes. Okay. So I hate grocery shopping. (laughs) It gives me severe anxiety to be in a grocery store, not just during the pandemic, but at any time. It's overwhelming. So I love Instacart. And the reason why is going back to what I was talking before, the messaging component of it. I feel like I have a personal assistant who is shopping and she is chatting or he is chatting with me in the app to make sure that they're buying the right thing, that they're replacing the right item and that they're getting it to my door. So I don't have to worry about the anxiety of being in the grocery store. So I love the Instacart app for that reason.
0: Well, and it's kind of an interesting one because it's, it's sort of an example of what we described. Like, did you come in through, to Instacart through the web or through the app? I actually,
2: uh, I actually can't, heard about it on web, and then now that I think about it, I clicked to get the SMS link to download the app because I got targeted for Instacart on web.
0: There you go. Great example. Cool. Uh, Warren, do you want to touch on, or I guess, Warren, do you have any thoughts about Instacart? <laughs>
1: Uh I have never used Instacart but I am uh thinking of like new solutions to get food to my house without going to the store. I during covid I like started using this frozen meal delivery service this like healthy frozen vegetarian meals but my whole strategy fell apart last week because it got hot and so all of my food showed up like leaking and like melting through the box and I'm Yum. just like okay I need a new strategy like I, <laughs> this food is not safe to eat. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe revisiting uh, shopping via Instacart because I also hate going to the store.
0: I think that's a common theme. Uh, cool. Uh, Warren, do you want to touch on yours, your App of the Week?
1: I sure do. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I like doing these App of the Weeks because it always makes me like catch up on an app I've been meaning to dig into if I haven't yet. Um, and uh, an app I've been tracking for a while I alluded to earlier. Um, this is a mobile app. Um, app. I, I would not call it specifically a game called called Rec Room. Um, and I really like what Rec Room are working on here. So I, I would say like the closest comparison is something like Roblox, where they've built like a virtual world um, and a whole uh, ecosystem. So they started as a, a VR platform, a, a, a VR um, experience, and they've now expanded. As I alluded to earlier, you can play on PC, you can play on mobile, you can play on uh, console, and you can still play in VR and same user experience. So, I mean, what, what are you doing in, in Rec Room? It's basically it's a user driven economy where uh, you can create these rooms and you can design your own games you can design your own art and then you can participate in other user-generated content and it's very polished it's a very like Nintendo like experience um, yeah and I started finally like getting to dig into it um, this week I'm still pretty early in my experience but um, it's a real standout product in a world of a lot of copycats in when it comes to like gaming experience in the mobile ecosystem so Uh, I really like the innovation here. I like that their economy is based on sharing revenue with creators, Um, and just on the business side, they've been making some really big moves with talent acquisition lately. Um, uh, They just announced that Brian Sapp uh, just joined as VP of Marketing, formerly of Jam City, and I know they've got some other big plays uh, they're working on as far as bringing in top talent, but um, this is one of my like main like companies to watch um, in mobile, but kind of like tying to our bigger theme, just like in sort of this evolution of like thinking about like cross-platform user experience. Uh, and I'm also just like fascinated with how uh, virtual worlds are going to be evolving next few years. Um, are either of you? I know Xander, I've mentioned to you, but have either of you like tracked Rec track Room at all, or or have any thoughts on just sort of like this emerging uh, virtual worlds cross-platform experiences? Well, Warren, you got through that whole pitch without saying the term metaverse, so
0: shame. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is, I think, one of the most discussed things in gaming right now. I mean, from Fortnite, trying to copy it. Um, obviously, Roblox is the big one. I've never played Rec Room specifically. I played Roblox, and it's definitely uh, not for me. It's a children's version, but maybe this is a little bit more mature and something that I'd be interested in. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely something to watch. Super interesting. Maybe I'll check it out. What about you, Kristen?
2: Yeah, so actually it's really interesting. And I'm coming from um, thinking about HubSpot and other companies like HubSpot where we're using this same concept, but for events, online events. And we're creating an immersive mm. experience. It's an immersive experience. It's supposed to mirror what it would be like if you were in person. So thinking like Rec Room or perfect example is The Sims. Um, the way that we're hubspot and other companies are thinking about that virtual like experience of um since we can't be in per- or haven't been able to be in person um, we're using that same technology and that same concept to um create engagement in like expos and summits and all of these conferences that are happening so inbound is our major conference that we have every year and where we last year was the first year we did this And we're going to continue doing it even in a hybrid experience where you feel like you're in downtown Boston and you're in the convention center and you're talking to people with your avatar and having that um, virtual experience that's more immersive than you've seen in the past.
1: The question is, are you going to replicate the experience of like the smarmy sales guy following you around the conference so he can get a conversation (laughs) with you in that virtual (laughs) environment?
2: I I, I actually, I might try to do that to my partners when I'm in in the virtual space this year, (laughs) just stalking them. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's that's really cool, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really, really interesting. Cool.
0: Um, my app this week is Turo. So Turo is I'm not in my my house. Um, I am in Austin right now, and um, I needed a car, and so I was. Looking up like Hertz and Enterprise, and not only were they booked out, but they were super expensive. And I downloaded, this, started googling, and found this app called Turo. Actually, it was referred, um, but I found this app called Turo, and it's super easy to download. Um, actually, to the conversation earlier, we first, I first went onto the web, signed up for, uh, signed up for it on the web, um, and then went, you booked a car, and then after you booked the car, you download an app, and then you use the app uh, code on the app to go basically unlock a car and just get access to a car, access to a car which you can then drive around and rent um and it was super easy and super great to use and it's sort of it's like a ride sharing kind of deal or a shared economy kind of deal where these are just people renting out their cars using the platform um but it worked really well it's you know and it saves some money save some time and it was, it was kind of great
1: all right sanders so i've i've came really close to using toro um from the other end of renting out my car before because you know mostly working from home like like everybody else and i always fell short so here's here's my question like what what assurance Does uh, the renter have that that you are not a psychopath uh, are going to do something like uh, you know defile the car in some way when you use it? Like, but but put another way, are there like user reviews or like can you can you filter out to like only uh, rent your car out to someone with like a certain amount of feedback? Or are there any safeguards along that line? Uh,
0: Not sure from the user side. I mean, I I was looking for Tesla, so maybe I should have rented your car. We didn't end up renting one, but I was I was thinking about it. But I mean, like any marketplace, they have to have some sort of checks and balances, right? Because like if you, I guess it's, some people do get killed on Uber, but it's pretty infrequent, right? Like these systems at the end of the day, you have to you have to have some sort of feedback loop to protect the the both sides of the marketplace, otherwise people won't use it. So I don't know, but I think it'd be fair to assume that they, there's something in place.
1: Do you, have any, do you have any knowledge of um, how uh, Toro's businesses, I'd be curious to see like how their business has trended during COVID, like with people having like their vehicles as an underutilized resource. I mean, I guess demand has also been down too, but this could be a big year for them actually because travel's going back up, but a lot of people are still working from home. So like there's demand coming back, but there's still the underutilized resource of people having cars who are not driving.
0: Well, and this is weird macro trend of like people were rental companies were not buying cars during COVID. And so there's this glut, but they were selling off them to generate revenue. So there's this uh, deficit of rental cars on the market. And so maybe there's this demand that's pent up that literally the reason I went to this service was because I couldn't get a a reasonably priced enterprise car. And so, I mean, yeah, maybe it's the time time to shine. Cool. Um, Kristen, any thoughts about Turo?
2: Honestly, I used get around for, I, I didn't have a car for six years. So I used get around for my means of transportation. And to Warren's point, there was really no checks and balance. I never drove. <laughs> so te- I don't know why anyone would have trusted me with their car, but I just up <laughs> have, had a valid license and I was allowed to use my neighbor's cars.
1: <laughs> Kristen um, is the scared straight story. <laughs> Not using <Yeah>. services.
2: <laughs> don't use the service if you like your car. <laughs>
0: There you go, awesome. Uh, well, thanks for everything. Uh, great conversation this week, Kristen. If someone wants to get a hold of you or try out HubSpot, where can they do that?
2: Yeah, so you can sign up for your free version of HubSpot straight on the uh, on the website at hubspot.com. Uh, but if you ever want to connect with me, you can hit me up at c. at hubspot.com. <laughs> I'm always uh love to network and talk with everyone.
0: Awesome, uh, Warren. Do you want to take us out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as always, uh, this week's episode of App Talk was brought to you by the folks at Uptick. So at Uptick, we uh, build tools for growth marketing automation for uh, mobile apps. And we have a full service team that helps developers uh, figure out their growth strategies and execute those growth strategies. So um, it's never been a crazier or more diverse time for this kind of work. Um, we're doing everything. I mean, our day is like the same day can, can come from like developing crazy creative concepts to like doing nitty gritty data modeling to figure out how we're going to work around these iOS 14 uh, privacy changes. Um, and it's really fun work. It's really, uh, all over the place and cross-disciplinary and that's why we love doing it. So, um, yeah, if you need help growing your app or figuring out the right strategy for that, reach out to us at uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Awesome. Talk soon.